All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have Jarrett Michael Nickerson, bass player extraordinaire. Um, Jarrett has played with an absurd amount of projects. I'm going to name a few. Um, Human Switchboard, JJ Jumpers, Black Rock Coalition. He's also played with um, The Roots, Mark Anthony Thompson, DJ Logic, um, Bernie Worrell, Freedy Johnston. The list goes on. This is just a few. But we're here to talk to him about his work with the Burnt Sugar Orchestra Chamber, spelled A-R-K as a nod to um, Sun Ra. We get into it, um, which is an absurdly cool group, unjustly summed up right quick. It's an improv orchestra that is conducted. Now, I dove into all the records before our conversation, and right before I started to get into some of their live performances, where they'll take a piece like they did um, Shaft, and they perform it live but improv There's a really cool video on YouTube. you got to check it out. Burnt Sugar's new album is Angel Over Okanda. It's available on all streaming platforms. And on September 23rd, John Coltrane's birthday, and there will be a standalone edition with outtakes and other bonus features available on Bandcamp. You can also order a physical copy at the following locations, or following record stores. Downtown Music Gallery, New York City. Dusty Groove, Chicago. Amoeba Records. And Landlock Music. Those are locations where you can order a physical copy from. It's important to support the record stores while we still got them, especially during these times. We're going to listen to a track off of Okanda. Here is Isla Ova in a Okanda. Angels over Okanda. You're slipping away from my sympathy. Being erased from any empathy, taking my blues back and all my unruly symphonies, maroon terrain, subject to
Isla over in a Okanda, off of Angels over Okanda. Jarrett is a wealth of knowledge. This conversation was greatly appreciated, and um, we're going to hear that one second. If you guys can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and all the podcast platforms, and maybe give us a follow on the social media, such as the Instagram and the Twitter, at Zig at the Gig. It helps me keep talking to inspiring people and sharing those insights with you. And without further ado, Jarrett Michael Nickerson. So um, let's jump into it. When did you when did you start slapping on the piano? Um, I was raised on piano. Actually, my family, my aunt and my mother, they both played violin because my grandfather and sister, they played something. And my mother, I wanted to be a drummer to, to begin. Yeah. But my mother said I, I needed to have some harmonic theory. Um, as my foundation, so she started me off on piano, and I took seven years of piano, and then um, in high school, I um, played flute and was also in the um, percussion section in the um, concert band and played drums in the marching band my senior year. Wow, so you got a rounded, rounded jump, uh, like jump into music. Yeah, it's funny. I was able to get like sort of like a harmonic foundation and a rhythmic foundation before I even touched bass. And that's kind of like the blending of both worlds. So, Which is what bass is. Yeah. It connects both worlds. Beautiful. That's a growing up with a musical family like that, was it a was it was it competitive or was everyone just like supportive as far as like um as far as like oh that's not right, or you're almost there, that type of deal. Oh, no, no, no. Music, music in my family, it, it wasn't um, put on a pedestal to become competitive. Hmm. It was basically okay. just sort of like more of a rounding out tool, being able to open up, you know, the, everybody's senses to, a, to, another, to another art form. And so basically, whatever I played, they were they were always very very supportive. I mean, you know, growing up in the um, being a child of the '60s, basically, you know, it wasn't strange. First of all, we were um, raised on AM radio. FM radio really didn't even exist back then, and AM radio was pretty much open formatted. So there was it wasn't strange for you to hear um, the Four Tops, Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch. And then the next thing you hear is Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love. So it was pretty uh, a blessed time, actually, to be exposed to music as a youngster. So we were big, um, we were big Beatles fans, actually, growing up. And I remember uh, my aunt allowed us to, to throw our first concert in her basement. And we actually um, put a drum set together. We sort of um, duct taped a drum set together out of boxes and using, you know, different size boxes to get the different, the different timbres and everything and um, played acoustic guitar and did some Beatle covers and stuff. And uh, they all came down and, and, you know, I can't even imagine how horrible it must have sounded, but, but they loved us for it. And so it was always very supportive, Dave, in our family. That's beautiful. Do you remember what Beatles songs you did? I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. 
<laughs> wow. Wow. That's so it was was other forms of art really in uh uh what's the word I'm looking for? Encouraged as well. Um well I didn't really I didn't really um drift too far away from music. Okay. Like I was never interested in becoming a, a, a artist or sketching or, I mean, you know, everybody as a kid you doodle, you know, you make little crazy things, but never, never thought of it as as becoming a, a lifelong obsession or or goal or, or you know profession, anything like that. It was pretty much music for me. Was there a what was the moment that made that clear? That was like this is going to be my form of expression. Um, it, it didn't, it wasn't a moment. I just, I'll just say it was sort of like a, a cascade of, of, of events that, first of all, we all love to dance. And, um, you know, I was always learning the, the latest dances from my mom and my mom's friends, you know, the hitchhike, um, the camel walk, uh, um, the funky Broadway, all of those and of course you're dancing to Motown and all that. So music has just always been a part of my household and my upbringing. So it, it you know it just it just sort of morphed into um I had a guitar and noticed that I was um really wasn't interested in playing chords. Was really just interested in playing single notes with my thumb in fact, which I still play with basically predominantly today. Yeah. And um, eventually I just said, like, well, would you give me a bass? And so there's a, a very, very, it's, it, it might be, it's, it's famous for, for, where it, for where it is in Dayton, Ohio. And Dave, just to let you know, I was born in Cleveland, actually. Nice. And went to St. Cecilia um, grade school before my mom moved to Dayton nice. because she um, picked up a job at the Veterans Veterans Administration as a um, radioisotope chemist. Wow. So we moved to Dayton, and um, there's a music store by the name of Howard's, which was run by the Howard family. And they were, <clears throat> they were um, kind of legendary in, in supporting um, high school music programs in the area. And I know it's it's sort of like a dinosaur and doesn't not even a a topic of conversation these days, but back in the sixties uh, music departments in in high schools were thriving and were were very integral to like your your basic form of education and so <clears throat> I was able to go to Howard and my first base was a a harmony base. And then from harmony, um, I believe my second bass, I started to go to Fenders, had a Fender Precision, then a Fender Jazz. And I also even had a, um, the bass of my dreams back then was Ampeg put out a bass that had a scroll on top, like as if it was a classical instrument, like an acoustic bass. And it was semi-acoustic because it had a, a, a hollow body. And right when I finally had saved enough money to buy one of those, they stopped making them and replaced it with um, the Dan Armstrong plexiglass bass. 
And so I was able to get one of those. And those were really strange creatures because they had like a pickup that was sort of like, it looked like it was baked because it had like an adobe outer cover. And um, mine cracked. And our music was so connected to its customers that they actually contacted Mr. Armstrong in England. And he sent another pickup that basically um, they were able to insert in the bass, but it, 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 was, it, was, it didn't have a transistor. So the, the cable that from the um, bass to the amp had a transistor, transformer or whatever as part of the cable. And then I was able to play using that. But that's just to show you how, right. how hands-on you know, Howard was with its, with its customers. Yeah, that's important. Shops like that, and pe- like that's the. I imagine they would also have the lessons, and like. Oh yeah. Right. So like the you're. It's not just like, the Walmart of guitars we have now. Um, but you know, actually carrying and like making that scene, and Dayton had a huge, uh, funk scene. That as far as a place to get a bass, that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It was pretty wonderful growing up and all that. Did you get to did you get to hang with the those guys, like Ohio players and like Zap and did you cross paths early on cuz I know your career kind of took you to Boston, right? It took me actually to South Bend, Indiana and then to Boston. Oh, okay. Okay. And and what happened was all of that first of all the whole Dayton funk scene had three to four different elements that made that as to why it became so vibrant. And the first one um, was the fact of the of the of the um, the vibrancy of the high school um, music music teaching the, the teachers in high school the music teachers yeah. in high school. And the second one was that back in those days, Dayton, for the small town it was had um, three or four different types of industry. There were the car companies, there was National Cash Register, there was Inland Steel, there were a few other manufacturing arms, and there was Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So you had um, two household families that we're talking about, like, you know, back in in the, um, this is now, we're now in the 70s. We're talking, you know, the late 60s, because I went to, I left Dayton in 71 for college. So you're talking about in the late 60s through the 70s of having two household families that were pulling in a nice piece of change, and everybody lived in homes. So what they did, most of them tricked out their basements into making them sort of like entertainment dens, and we would just go from, from parents' den to den and jam. And basically, it was it was fine with the parents because at least they knew where we were and what we were doing. Right. So you 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 combine and then you combine the fact that all these high schools had talent shows. So they had like three or four talent shows a year, and folks would get together little bands just to compete in the talent shows and be very serious about it. I mean, come in with outfits and. You know, do you know we were raised on James Brown because James Brown came through four times a year to Dayton. So everybody would have like their little review where they they maybe have um, 
three, you know, three girls who would be like a, a sing, come out and do some sweet inspirations. And then you'd have your James Brown impersonator or there'd be, you know, four or five fellows who would like sort of um, mimic, you know, temptation tunes and things of that nature. And everybody would have steps and, and that, the whole nine. I mean, it was, it was pretty involved. So all that was sort of like the, the birthing ground for, for the funk scene. And what it meant was you didn't have to, as a youngster, you didn't have to sneak into clubs or anything. You could play, you know, 12 or 14 times a year just at the talent shows. And that's not even, you know, and that's not even talking about how a lot of these kids also played in church. So you put that all together and, and you know, that's where, and it's a, being a small town too, that's where basically, you know, the whole funk thing, the whole funk thing, sort of like, um, can I say it? Blossomed almost. Blossomed is a good word. The whole funk thing blossomed because I mean, you know, the Ohio players played um, my Halloween high school dance. No way. So <laughs> they were like a local band. Yeah. And and you know, it wasn't just them. There was the Ohio players. There were the Majestics. There were the Imperials. There was a band by the name of Overnight Low. And Overnight Low is, is, is very important in that whole conversation because the, the drummer and guitar player in Overnight Low were um, Chet Willis and, um, and Diamond, Diamond Williams. And those were actually the two. They, they changed rhythm sections <clears throat> Um, the Ohio Players put out a number of albums on, on Westbound Records, Pain and Pleasure and things of those natures. Right. And those were basically um, led by um, Junie Morris. And at some point, I'm not sure, you know, I was a youngster, so I don't know exactly what went on. But they changed, Junie left, and they changed rhythm sections. Greg Webster, who was in the Ohio Players, went to the overnight low. And Diamond came into the Ohio Players, and Chet Willis came over too, and that was the band that did the first Mercury record, Skin Tight. Mm. And of course, when Skin Tight came out, that's when they became international stars. Right. right. All that amongst you know just the, the the sort of like the sort of just local musician base of Dayton. That that kind of you know kind of intermixing that sort of like developed. And then of course, after the Ohio players hit and you see like these guys, you know, driving around a small town in Lamborghinis and Ferraris <laughs> and stuff like that. Other musicians were like, Hey, <laughs> they got the right idea. <laughs> yeah. We, we want to do that too. So then you had bands like, um, zap more bounce the ounce, Roger mm -hmm. Troutman. Now let's let's talk about Roger Troutman. Roger Troutman's family basically had a construction, a, a home refurbishing company, and um, because of that, they were they were fairly wealthy. And so Roger, when he first started playing out, his his band was actually called Roger and the Human Body Band, and he was like a Hendrix impersonator. Hmm. And then he 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 and you know and and asked that since they were kind of wealthy, they they always, Roger and, and his family, and he used his family members in the band, would always have, like, the latest equipment. So they'd be playing an outdoor shed, and they'd have, like, the custom amps 
that had the colored vinyl. Yeah. And they'd have all kinds, you know, just just everything that that you would you would think that only pro groups would have. So Roger was raised in that kind of environment. And then of course, you know, then he becomes, you know, Roger Troutman and and, and starts to to record nationally. And um you have you have Slave which was um they went from they went from a high school stage to um, being produced, the album coming out, and next thing you know, they're going around the country as high school students opening up for the Commodores. Jeez, so cool. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. What about Lakeside or Heatwave? You ever crossed paths with those guys? Um, well, actually, Lakeside, two of the, the, the Beavers brothers, Norman and Vincent, I knew, because they lived right yeah. down the street from me. No way. And um, when... Now, also, they were just called Lakeside back in that day. I mean, excuse me, maybe it was Lakeside Express. It was, it was, it was one of them that when they went to L.A., um, they changed their name. They, they either dropped or they added. I think so. Maybe it was Lakeside Express, and then they changed it just to Lakeside. But um, Norman stayed in the group, but Vincent went out there, and he just didn't like L.A. So he came back. And they got a, another brother um, from Dayton to play bass, but but yeah, I mean we were all sort of running around at the same time, and I was kind of angry at my mother because when um, I did fairly well in high school and received some scholarship offers, and the fact that I went up to all Catholic schools, basically the quality of my education was 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 pretty top notch. Um, when I received three or four different scholarships and also was accepted to the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, my mother kind of forced me to do that. And I was a little angry because it was going, it was taking me out of the Dayton music scene right when things were starting to pop. But um, now that I look back on it, it was a blessing because what it did, it enabled me to have, it enabled me not to, solely depend on music for my income. Right. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of musicians. Huh? I was going to say, having that other skill set, unlike the other musicians who just kind of honed in on the music aspect, the performance aspect, there's a balance to it. And it's really hard to engage the business end of it unless you get that, that knowledge. But, of course, I had no idea of that at the time. Right, right. And, you know, it's just like, it's just like little kids... Um, you know, when if, if you want to be a basketball player, you're really thinking just about the art and the physicality of basketball. You're not thinking about the business of having an agent and negotiating a contract and realizing that that only, you know, 30 players are picked a year to get into the NBA and actually stay. And, and then your career, if you're, if you're physically blessed, might last what twelve years, and then and then you're in your your thirties, and you still have your whole life ahead of you. So so what happened was going to Notre Dame. I realized that um, I didn't want to do anything that would completely squash my music, and then I didn't want to do anything that would be useless once I graduated. So I decided to become a business major and actually graduated with a, a business management degree, which has been invaluable to me throughout my life. And the fact that I've, 
I've handled the business for basically every band I've been in. Which makes you an invaluable part of that band. Like you can't, the band can't exist unless you're. So you're back to kind of being that. It's almost in a weird way where the bass is in the band, right? It's bringing yep. the the business end and the and the art end to it, and making sure it's capable and financially able to do to take that offer or not take that offer. It's an interesting. Yep. and uh, also to parallel. know what that offer is from the top dollar, right? Because you know, in the music business, I mean, just even the way it started there have always been sort of folks who have taken advantage of musicians. And, and I saw that firsthand, even when I, when I was just doing, a, being a side person for, for other artists, in the fact that, you know, there's, there's the booking agent, there's the manager. There are a lot of people that, that had their fingers in the artist's pies before the artist even was able to, to sit down at the table. So with me having the knowledge that I have, basically, I basically eliminate both of those, both of those jobs. So I, I, I basically negotiate directly with the presenter or the club owner or whoever. So I know the top dollar. I know exactly what we're getting. It's not like I'm in the dark. And I've, I've seen a lot of musicians be left in the dark. And, you know, the manager says, well, we can only pay you. Um, 500 for this gig and then you look at the contract or maybe finally he looks at the contract later and, and sees the gig was for 5000 that happened very often yeah that be just knowing that it it could be you know what i mean having that insight like that cuz if you're performing you're already like there's so much that goes into that aspect of it then to try to dive into contracts and stuff and try to figure that out, I can see how that would you know how that's overbearing for someone yep. who who's trying to front all that and like and if depending on the character, you know how how hard that might be for someone to think critically like that when you're performing and in that mindset. So to have that insight like that that especially at that time, like because I feel now a little bit more more probably than back then than back then like a lot of uh groups are kind of handling a lot of like management and like um uh, uh booking on their own now a little bit more than maybe when you had to depend on a record contract but um even dealing with something like that though i'd imagine there's a lot of like shiftiness and what actually is this contract and is this worth it you know so that that yeah. that sound it sounds like you definitely lucked out with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and I forgot. I forgot the actually the third element to that, to the to that finger in the pie, and yeah. those are lawyers. Mm. You know, so you have agents, you have um, managers, you have lawyers. Everybody, you know, publishers. Everybody getting their finger in your pie for something that you create. None mm. of them have a job without the artist. Right. And you and, and you know and the thing is, Dave. If if but it's just maybe maybe it's just human nature. I'm not sure. But if people had just dealt fairly with people, you know, then then maybe we wouldn't have all these cases of musicians ending up in poverty, although they sold like you know hundreds and thousands of records and have gold records and platinum records on their wall, yet they're living at home with their mother. 
you know, it, it's just, it's, you know, it can make you cry, man, when you think about just how musicians who are basically the lifeline have been, have been mistreated. Thinking about guys like Sly from Sly and the Family Stone and like Hendrix and guys like that that got completely run over with their contracts. Oh, you can think about all kinds of folks. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of folks. That, and, and the thing is, it's not, even, it's not even a racial thing. It's basically happened to everybody. Right. Everybody who, who didn't handle their own business basically has horror stories to tell about the business do you think that is is a kind of a because of the performer having so much else to kind of deal with or do you think it's just the the like uh the greed from the business end of it what where's this kind of i think they leaned on that yeah i think they leaned on that and the fact that you know look you just you just take care of the music let me handle the business right you know, I good. think they leaned on that. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, that's that's exactly what you want to hear. Right. right. And if 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 those are like clubs that they created, me, music basically is a very organic thing. It comes out of a person. And it's either either you know, you you do something that res you, you, you perform or create something musically that resonates with other people so it becomes popular, or you don't. But there's a lot of musicians who basically create create music, and it pretty much is just a personal statement, and brings like sort of like a personal gratification to them. It doesn't even become part of the business. But once you you create something that resonates with other folks, being you sitting on your porch, you know, and you, and you play a banjo tune, and some folks says, you know, that's pretty good. Why don't you come down to my to my um, you know general store? on Saturdays and play, and then you play, and then all of a sudden you start to draw crowds, and then all of a sudden somebody says, like, well, look, I can take you in, and we can make a record of this and, and, and take you from being, you know, local to regional to national. You, you know yeah. what I mean? You just yeah, go yeah. you go along with that flow, and then before you know it, now you're touring the country, you know, but you don't have any paperwork. You don't know what's going on with those records. You know you're famous, but you might be making a little bit of money on the road, but but you know you don't know what's happening with with the uh, with the receipts, with, with with the money coming in from those records and things like that. And then and then there you are, you're like you know you're Johnny Cash, and and you're you're really famous, or you you know you're Buddy Holly and you're really famous, or you're Marshall Crenshaw and you're really famous, and and then all of a sudden it's like, well hold it, you're telling me I don't own my own music. You're too busy like performing it, keeping that thing going. It definitely. Uh, um, kind of on a side on a side question. Growing up in the Dayton funk scene and starting the play bass, even though that's where you kind of you moved out before the, the big boom was. What bass wise? What was the lessons like that? Like, just even hanging around, going from den to den, like just being with these other bass players. When did, when did the thumb move around, or did the thumb stick? Were you that that guy that inspired other friends to use their thumb? Like, uh, what like musically, what was like the lessons you took from from the Dayton funk scene? Well, I, really, Dayton. 
Dayton funk is is more than just music. I mean, it's also roller skating and dancing, and and both of those sort of inform my music, especially roller skating. Because roller skating, there's like a, a, a Dayton, Ohio style roller skating that's um, almost like what's the yoga position where you basically balance one leg behind the other. Um, I can see it, is but it, I, I don't know the name of it. Is it oh. downward dog or, or whatever? But you, you know what I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, that pretty much is is the position of of the Dayton Glide, but just with alternating alternating your legs like that on skates to the beat, and then doing that and adding whatever personal flavor you have in that. So maybe you might step a leg back and hold it for like four beats, or you might hold it for eight beats before you switch to the other leg, or you might um, 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 turn it around so that you're doing that backwards, or you might wiggle your leg while it's behind you, things of that nature. All that, you know, came into personal style. Well, when you're into that, basically it, 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 it leads to your breathing being affected because you breathe to the physicality of how you skate. And, and, as, as I'm sure you know, breathing is very important in playing music because what folks will tell you and what you'll, what you'll learn eventually is that when you start to, when, you, when you're young and you play what, what you consider to be a difficult piece of music or a difficult section of a song, if you pay attention to your physicality, you realize sometimes you stop breathing which is just exactly the opposite of what you should do because you should breathe through the section so that your body stays loose and nimble and, and you're feeding it oxygen so that it can execute the idea. So once you, once you get into the fact that how important your breathing is, like you should breathe more, you should feed your body more oxygen for, for the difficult sections of the music, then how you breathe sometimes will in, influence you know, how you play. And so the breathing that I had to put into effect, well, the breathing that, that I didn't have to, the breathing that was in effect when I roller skated informed my bass playing. And so my bass playing basically, it's, it's, it's not so much on the beat as it's between the beat. And so that's that's another Dayton influence that really had nothing to do with with musical instruction, but had more to do with environment that actually um, informed my informs my playing. And I pretty much stayed with the thumb. I never switched to fingers, so there wasn't really much that I could share or or or, you know, take from other players, because most players play with their, their first two fingers. Um, but what I could take was we could just all take just the whole, the whole sound of, 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 of listening to each other. And, of course, back in those days, you emulated, you know, the recording artists that you were listening to. So we were listening to, you know, we were listening to everybody. We were listening to Hendrix. We were listening to Chicago. We were listening to the Beatles and the Stones, the whole British invasion, Steve Miller, the whole San Francisco scene, 
um, you know, we, we listened to it all. And, and so we would, we would play it all. And eventually we, we would play tunes um, and then just sort of like morph them into, into as if they were our tunes. And sort of like a pivotal moment in my um, upbringing is, of course, you know, as a bass player, the way you develop and gather technique is you put on records and then you try to play that bass part. And um, at one point I was doing that and um, my father came in and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm learning this bass part. And he said to me, do you know what you're doing really is that you're just making that, that bass player famous. If you go out and you play that line, just as is, then you're basically just making the bass player who's on that record famous. Doesn't do anything for you. And I thought about that and realized he was right. And so what, what, what I would do from then, from then on, is I would learn the bass part on the record, but then I would take the basic um, construction of that and, and think of how I would like it to sound, how I would play it. And so that was very instrumental to me that moment as it started, it, it helps me to develop my sound. That's pretty, that's very pro well said and profound. It's, um, it makes me think there's this Mary Oliver quote about uh, emotional freedom coming from a mm. discipline in the diligent. So learning, mm. learning from others and learning how to make it your own. But even to combine it with just the natural movement of skating and the music where it's where it's going to end up to some degree, and being like feeling the physicality of that, that's really profound. I had um, an interesting experience earlier this week with uh, one of my students, um, and I never thought of it this way. But what you made me, or what you said, made me is making me think of it. Um, even like breathing is so important to music, and even on an instrument that you may not think a woodwind like i mean you know that involves breath but an instru an instrument that doesn't involve breath like drums like even the drum shells we were using like uh my class we were passing around a, basically a drum kit broken up and the one student was putting his finger over the the hole on the side and like why is this here I'm like that's and <laughs> i i just said that's so the drum can breathe and i'm i never thought of it like that until i said it at that moment i'm like well it is it's very cuz it, it is when you hit it the air's moving out even in That's an right. instrument that doesn't have like a direct contact with your breath is still in contact with your breath it's a That's right. Yeah, it's so what you said was very profound. That's awesome. Um so when did the human switchboard become the outlet? Um so after I um graduated from Notre Dame, I Auditioned because I want. Then I, then I really realized I really wanted to start to to um, really start to refine my musical abilities. And um, through the professor who ran the jazz department in Notre Dame, he encouraged me. Father was Kirkin, who basically um, at his high school in Chicago, he actually had two of the um, Two, two members of the horn section of Chicago were in his class. And when he came to Notre Dame to start their, their jazz department, um, he was the first one to introduce me to Electric Miles. 
I didn't know about Miles as far as his, his you know, jazz and, well, not all of it was jazz, but his classical period of like Kind of Blue and Sketches of Spain and all that. I didn't know about Miles then. What, what introduced me to Miles was, um, you know, um, Get Up and um, Bitches Brew and Jack Johnson and all that. So that's the Miles that, that I was first introduced to. And we would, um, I remember the name of the little um, combo that we had there. It was called Erg's Finger Circus. And um, we were, we were um, blessed to basically have um, two concerts a month at the student center. And then also I, I was able to continue my reading there in, in the uh, Notre Dame Big Band. So he encouraged me to, to, to apply, and I applied to three or four schools. And I was accepted to Tulane University in New Orleans, and I was accepted to Berkeley and New England Conservatory in Boston. And I chose New England because it seemed like they had more of a individual, individually focused curriculum. Whereas Berkeley seemed to be a little bit more um, cookie cutter to me, mm. and Tulane, I had never been down south, so New Orleans would just have been a completely new experience, and I sort of didn't want to, you know, have put that much on my plate at that time. Mm. So I went to New England, went there for two years, and then um, after two years, figured I, I had what I needed, and left and was in a band. Um, there by the name of Hypertension, and we became a pretty popular funk band in Boston um, from like from like seventy, I want to say seventy eight, no, no, maybe seventy six. Excuse me, seventy six to eighty, and then they kicked me out the band once we had a um, we we received a production deal from a, a gentleman by the name of Lyman Underwood, who was part of the Underwood Devil's Ham family. So he was wealthy, to say the least. And we went from playing on stage in our street clothes and riding in the back of the truck to basically being um, riding in limos, having seven changes of handmade outfits and, and a rehearsal complex and the whole nine. And there was always a little tension in the band. And I guess the 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 two older members of the band just decided that now that they were on the gravy train, they didn't really need me as far as business. And so they kicked me out. And in 1980, I came back to Dayton. Um, while in Dayton, I was able to run into uh, a guy by the name of Dean Hummins, who was in the, the band some Sun and, and Dayton, had hits, and he had like a four-track recording studio in his basement and I guess he got wind of a Sony Records um, contest that asked for a four song submission you know in, in the in the effect that you might receive a recording contract and he invited me and a few others it was myself um, this woman Jenny Douglas who now is one of the backup singers for Pink has been for years. Um, Roger Parker, who was um, one of the, um, he was, when when Steve Arrington moved off the drums, 
and moved to, to lead vocals in Slave. Roger, Roger came in to play drums for them. And then when Steve Arrington left Slave and started his own band, Hall of Fame, Roger Parker was the drummer in that. So he was the drummer. It was Dean on keyboards. It was Chris Bowman on guitar, who also played in Dayton. And now he plays with the Ohio Players. And we did a four-track I mean, we did a we did a four tune, a collection of four tunes that we all wrote, and we didn't win anything. <laughs> but um, but a lineup. But man. what? Oh yeah, and in fact, just just to tie that off, um, about three years ago, I was connect I was contacted by a label in San Francisco by the name of Beat Electric, yeah. and they're basically part of a club of. Um, of of, of um, record collectors and also record um, label 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 um, they also they, they they record collect but they also produce they also have their own labels and he wanted to put out two of the tunes from that collection of songs oh, that's cool. and oh. so he did and and yeah. they they became a twelve inch and they did very very well. And and so it's funny how it took, what is that, like 40, what is that? That's like 40 years, 50 years, 40 years later that we what we did just to try to get a record contract, actually the tunes did come out on record. So I say all that to say, knowing Dean at that time, um, Human Switchboard was coming down from Cleveland playing shows in Dayton, um, the Walnut Hills and the... Um, I think it was the, the 1080 Club or the 808 Club, and one time they came down, and because they were doing, they were in the studio with Dean. Uh, I guess Drax from Slave had gotten up on stage with them and jammed, and they liked it. And Drax introduced them to Dean, and so they were coming to Dayton to to record in Dean's studio, and they had a gig at the Walnut Hills, and uh, the um, bass player from, didn't want to come down from Cleveland. So Dean, he recommended me, and both of us, Dean and myself, we, we learned about eight or nine songs, and then we did the show, and the show went really, really well, till where just a few weeks later, I received a call from Bob Pfeiffer and Myrna McCarrion, and they said, would you like to join the band? And um, so I said, sure, because I wasn't doing anything else. So... Um, I would, you know, I would um, come come up from Cle from Dayton to Cleveland. We'd rehearse for a few weeks, and then we'd head up to the East Coast and and do the the circuit at that time, which was like um, what was it? CBGB's, Danceteria, Peppermint Lounge, Maxwell's in Hoboken, 930 Club in D.C., Kyber Pass in Philly. Storyville and the Rat in Boston. We'd come up and do a, a whole like little, you know, run of the East Coast, and then take East Coast money back to to Ohio, and live comfortably for like you know four or five months, and then do another run. Well, things went so well with that to the point where now we were like um, one of the New Year's Eve bands which back in those days was a big thing if a club would, you know, invite you to play on New Year's Eve. So we would do um, we would do Maxwell's. We would do CBGB's on New Year's Eve. We, we, we did really well. And then that started to, to garner um, 
record label attention, and we started doing demos for records, for record labels. Um, did one for Capitol and Mike Thorne right out off off his, um, and he was hot because he had just, um, he he was glowing, he was basking in the glow of um, Soft Cells Tainted Love, and we were his next project. And then, um, and that fell through for a number of reasons. But, um, and then we were, became the darlings of a man by the name of John Staines, who was working at Polydor, and Polydor was doing really well because they had Dexie's Midnight Runners and um, a, a few, oh, um, Big Country and a few other bands. So they were almost like a label that was looked at like bringing in the new hit makers. And, and, and John Staines wanted us to, to sort of like be next in line. Um, so we would actually go into CBGB. Like, he, he, like even when we did, um, and I'm flirting around a little bit, but it's all the same subject. Even when we did like the Capitol thing um, demos, they basically brought us up, and it was I think it was Media Sound, the studio we worked at. They had an apartment on um, it was, I think it's like 66 off Broadway and between Broadway and West End. And Dave, I have to tell you, that was the very very first time that um, you know we we sort of drove in because everybody drove back in those days, and being at a, a nine ten hour trip. We went to bed in, in the early evening, and I woke up three in the morning. So I heard like uh, chatter on the street and car horns and everything. To to look out the window to realize that there were more people on the street probably at that time of day and stores open than I, than I had ever seen before. So me and the drummer Ron Metz, we got dressed and went out, and and that's when we kind of fell in love with New York for real, because here it is two in the morning. And we could go places, we could get anything to eat and drink, and there'd be people out. And, and you know, being from Ohio, where everything shuts down at 9 o'clock right. at the latest, yeah. that was just a revelation to <laughs> us. It is a big, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. 9 o'clock set, cause, you know, in Ohio is pretty good, but in New York, it's not the, not the best time to start playing. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> So you know that's how I, that's how I got into 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 Human Switchboard, and then they they finally be, the record interest became so intense that they moved up from Cleveland. Um, Bob and Myrna did, and then Ron and myself we followed like a few months later, and we just became we became a local a local New York band. Who were you playing with with Human Switchboard at that time? Like who was the other local New York acts you were with? Oh. I mean, you know what, the flesh tones and, um, oh, man. Um, Richard, Richard Hell, okay. um, um, the individuals, the bongos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Hoboken. Um, yeah, the, all the Hoboken bands, the Hoboken scene was starting to really pop thin, um, I'm Cynthia Slay. I'm trying to remember the name of her band. Bush Tetras. Yeah. Um, them and uh, I mean, just you know, any anybody who was who was sort of like vibrant in those days that that was attractive to like Dance Terry or the Peppermint Lounge because we'd be on you know three or especially CBGBs we'd be on three or four band bills and stuff. So I'd have to actually go back and pull out the you know. 
the club advertisements to, to tell you exactly. But anybody who was anybody back then, if they played those clubs, we played with them. That'd be like a coming from like it's well, it makes sense that your the influence of the radio you listen to because like the coming from a funk scene where it's all based on kind of like a roller skating and dancing to maybe some of those acts are quite quite different. Like I'm trying to think of like the contortions or something like that that'd be around uh, CBGBs or or um, uh, Perubu maybe coming up from Cleveland. You got some some strange like uh, not as like organized in a way you know what i mean like at jumping from like music scene the music scene had to be pretty enlightening um yeah but i mean you, you know dave we even though we were in a, a funk scene like i like i mentioned the rock was just as prevalent because yeah. i mean the mccoys come from dayton yeah um you know it, it was we we were we were just as into rock as we were as into funk we were just, and in those days, and like I said, because of AM radio, basically just playing everything, um, we just didn't, we never really thought of things as being f- formatted because it wasn't part of our, our, our upbringing. And, and so when you, when you think of that, you know, I mean, you know, hang on Sloopy and, and, and things of that nature were, were just as, as popular to us as, as you know, anything. Is anything so the the rock thing was was just was just as much a part of me as the funk thing. So and and you know all of it pretty much comes from R and D. Right. So with that as as your basis, there, there was a common language that even when we were playing, even when I was playing with rock bands, there was a common language that I could that I could. Um, exude as the bassist, even though it was it was it was in a straight up independent rock context, no funk at all. Yeah, you know, and and so, but that's that's also probably particular to the instrument I played. Now it might not have translated as well, say, if I was uh, a guitarist or a keyboardist, mm. you know, or a drummer. Mm. Because there are particular, you know, idiosyncrasies to, to rock drumming and to funk drumming that really don't necessarily mix or don't necessarily meet. But bass playing, being a bassist, there's, you know, there's certain things that, that you listen to to some of that the, the rock of those days or you listen to like, um, what's my man out of Detroit um, who, was, who was big back then? Um, um, late Bob Seger. You know, like that old-fashioned rock and roll. There's some, there's some R&B in that. Definitely, definitely. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that because they are like, as far as like guitar-wise, there are definitely opportunities in rock music that may not exist in like a funk tune or vice versa. Um, or, or just kind of bit, bits you have to make sure are there uh, to, to kind of give the illusion of that genre. Um, I just I find it fascinating. I like the idea of being like water, being able to fit into whatever music you surround yourself with. Um, so after that, you did the, the JJ Jumpers, which was your first solo. Was it Project Right, or was it not the case, and that was just the next group? 
No, that was my that was my first personal group. Okay. After Humans Wishboard dissolved, um, I was up there, and only did it 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 was weird because first of all, Switch Switchboard dissolved because the two leaders of the band they had you know the band had been together four years before I joined. Okay. And then I joined for the last four years, and it was during that time the last the last two years. Um, that really all the national recording activity was happening. And it dissolved because one of the leaders decided that if they signed the contract, they would have to be legally, contractually connected to that other person for the next six years. And they couldn't do it. Jeez. <laughs> they couldn't do it. They they just personally so much so yeah. much had happened that that basically that that one person could not sign with, with knowing that they'd have to be interacting um, with the other person. So the band dissolved just like that, yeah. and we were all up here and just kind of like you know left um, without a lifeboat, a, a life preserver. Now what happened from that though the fallout from that was um, Bob Pfeiffer, he was offered a contract um, with Passport Records. And he called Ron and myself in with some other players, Bernie Worrell and some other players. Bernie and Worrell? we recorded. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Oh, Bernie wow. Bernie was like, would play with Switchboard when we'd come to New York because they both had the same lawyer. Yeah. And Bob and Myrna met Bernie actually in, in the lawyer's lobby. No way. That's so cool. And yeah, Bernie would sit in with us and stuff. So I got to know Bernie. Like, you know, I, you know, my band JG Jumpers actually um, supported Bernie yeah. on a tour for his Volunteer Slavery record because we, because we, because because of that, the fact that we knew each other from those days. Wow. You know? So, but but yeah. not to not to get too far ahead of the story. Um, so Bob received a um, a record contract with Passport Records, and he recorded. A solo record called Afterwards, and back in those days, the big thing was if you were an artist of note, you would host MTV's 120 Minutes, and you know, talk about you know you you'd be able to curate whatever videos you wanted for that that program, and also talk about your recording. And Bob Bob was was of that was of that nature, that of that ilk, that he was able to do that. And so they were, we were getting ready to, we were in rehearsals and getting ready to go out on tour in two weeks, national tour, and Bob gave me a call, invited me to lunch. And at lunch, he basically told me, and it's pretty much verbatim, because, you know, some things, Dave, you just don't forget. Right. Um, he says, like, you know, Jared, we can go out here and do this tour. And, and it could be really successful and sell a lot of records, and I can come home and still be broke after paying you and, that, and the band and, and road expenses and, and everything of that nature. And not only be broke, but be in hock to the record label for the tour expenses and all that. Hmm. But I've just been offered a job as an A&R person with Warner Brothers. And at this point in my career, just looking, you know, looking as to what it could be and might be, I think I'm going to have to take this job. Hmm. 
And he did. He took the job as an AR person for Warner Brothers. And basically, once again, I was <laughs> thrown out adrift. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I, he could not, you know, he could not have taken that job. He could not have said no. Yeah. It's, it's, it was just, you know, it was just circumstance. And so after that, uh, thanks to my business degree, I was able to acquire a job as the receptionist for a graphic arts firm called um, Coppell and Share. And they were pretty famous, both of those, both Terry Coppell and Paula Share in their own right. Paula Share, I believe, designed the famous um, Elvis Costello poster for Truth. Mm. And Terry was just, was just, he had worked for the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine and, and, and just was really, really good at constructing, you know, magazines and things of that nature, the graphic layout for those. And the two of them had gotten to know each other and liked each other and decided to open up their own company. And, in fact, one of their first um, main one of their first main employers was um, Swatch Watches. And those first ads where you see, like, the watch and, and people skiing and stuff of that nature, that was Coppell and Cher that did those and stuff. And so I was paid a pretty, a pretty penny for, for that job. And from that job, I had enough money now that I decided to start my own band. And that's how J.J. Jumpers um, was was came to fruition okay cool and then through going through that that's where you crossed paths with bernie and then uh right or how long how well long i had known that? bernie from the human switchboard day. oh that's right yeah the, okay so through that <laughs> so when you're doing your solo act or when jj and the jumpers is is taking off how long into that before bernie hits you up or um we were probably together for uh the Jumpers was together for a few years before Bernie even before Bernie even came on the scene with us, asked us to be his backup band, um, and that was just for a tour. Right. It wasn't like you know we were his backup band forever because we actually were um, part of the Black Rock Coalition, and as as I was their first director of operations, we worked all the time. You know, we were we were pretty popular on our own right, and um, we played Central Park Summer Stage. And we, we toured around the country, um, even went to Italy for a festival. Um, things went really well. And I'll just say, um, basically, that band got to the point where, David, it's a very tough thing. And we, 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 we sort of like touched on it earlier, the, the idea of being creative and also business-oriented. It's a very tough thing when one person has to wear both of those hats. Right. Because what happens is they start to bleed. The two worlds start to bleed into each other. And, you know, if you're paying for rehearsals and paying people to come to rehearsals and you're setting up gigs and all that, and then creatively, let's say people are late to rehearsals or, or they come to rehearsals unprepared. Or the, you, you rehearse stuff and then you play the gig and there's certain mistakes made that you just, you know, that really shouldn't be made. Now, now you say that there's mistakes made that shouldn't be made, but human, human nature, mistakes happen. 
And, and, and in music, the great thing about music is that what appears to be a mistake to you on the inside, to somebody on the outside, they're just taking it for what it is. It's not a mistake to them. So, so it could be just really a lovely musical moment that wasn't meant to happen but happened and really would only happen that, that, in that particular time. But, you know, it takes a lot of perspective to see it like that. If you're doing all the business and everything, you, you don't necessarily have that perspective. And so you might get angry at somebody for making the mistakes or, or angry at somebody for being late or something like that, and then it affects your relationship with them musically. And so, and so that's what happened, basically, is it just be, it overwhelmed me having to, to do both, and I couldn't keep them separate. So basically, after after a gig coming back from Philly, I just decided I couldn't do it any longer because I had put so much into the band, and I really didn't. And 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 un, unjustly, I'll say this: unjustly, I thought I wasn't getting the fair return for what I was providing for everybody. But really, when I look back on it, everybody was doing the best they could, you know. But at that time, and so I stopped the band. I I, I immediately watched the band the next day, and I became a side person. And from that, I went out to, um, I started playing with um, Freddie Johnston and um, was on his Can You Fly record. Um, we started to tour um, in the midst of, um, we did two nine-month tours back-to-back. In, in the midst of the second nine-month tour, I received a call from a manager friend who asked me if I wanted to audition for The The, and I didn't know who The The was. So I said, let me check. And I checked them on, on YouTube and, and just, you know, whatever I could find, and saw that they were an English band of some note and, 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 you know, were doing some nice things. And I said, like, yes, I'd like to. And to find out that when my audition day was set, it was three days before I'd get back to get back to New York, so I had to I had to pass, regretfully. But what happened was that weekend there was a snowstorm, and Matt Johnson couldn't fly out. So I was, and since we were traveling by road, we came back, and then um, I was able to. He was he was willing to to delay since he was already delayed, missed his flight that Monday, and I came in and auditioned with um, DC Collard and Dave Palmer and Matt. And I got the gig. And then I went to playing with the, the which put me on a completely different level of rock. Now, with Freddie, we did well. And we would do, we would go out and tour, like, in three and four band bills with, like, um, um, Soul Asylum, The Chills. Um, what was Evan Dando's band? Um, um, I can't remember their name. But anyhow, we, just the top of, of, of the alternative rock, um, we were out with them. We did a thing for um, the owner of, you know, the owner of MTV also owned VH1. And and basically, he, he we did the, the very first, I think they, they called it rock and golf or something like that. And the three bands on that bill were the three bands he thought were going to be um, the, the next hit makers for the next decade. Those three bands were us, Freddie Johnston, 
um, Cheryl Crow, and um, Hootie and the Blowfish. So he was right, two out of three. And um, even later, even later, with um, because of that, when um, Cheryl had all the um, success off her American Music Club record, she invited us out for four months to open up for her. And so, I mean, you know, I was doing well with Freedy. But when I went to the the, I mean, things like they flew us over to Linz, Austria, to rehearse. You know, we rehearsed like for a month in Linz, and then we did a, 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 a lo-fi down the download European tour. And then we came back and did an American tour to, to support the, rec, the record Dusk. And um, about a year later, we ended up opening up for um, four months for Depeche Mode. And playing with with them, that enabled me to do things like um, um, play Madison Square Garden two nights in a row, sold out, play the Toronto Sky Dome, um, play the Forum for a week in L.A. Um, just just the, 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 the tippy top of what rock and roll was supposed to be, I was exposed to when we opened up for Depeche Mode. And, and so, you know, my, my, my career as a side person actually really opened my eyes to, to just how lucrative the business of rock and roll was, you know. Um, and, it, and, it, and, it's, and it's aided me to this day in my negotiations and everything because I, I really know the value of music and I know the value of the dollar. And I really just don't accept anything unless it's really what it's supposed to be. Mm. Two questions on that. One, that's a fantastic voyage, pun intended, I guess, to from one <laughs> spot to the other. Like, but like, um, <laughs> but in your like, from taking the because thinking of how stressful that would be to run the business end of it and the artistic end of it. And just being in that room, bringing in the horn section, the 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 trumpet guy didn't get the didn't practice the sheet. They're they're messing up everything, you know, and the whatever, you know. I mean, like to have that mindset and be like, I, I know we're paying them this to be here. I can see how like how like frustrating it would be that focus on the music because you're looking at the big picture of everything. So like, is yeah. that is that how you handled being able to do both by being that side? That side care, that side person, was it easier to like, hey, bring it up to someone else? Hey, the trumpet guy, just so you know, this is what's happening. He keeps missing all the notes. You know what I mean? Or not that missing notes matters in music, like, um, but yeah, just that that kind of mindset. Was that your remedy to kind of hit that sideman, uh, that side spot, more um, with more intensity than like trying to run the whole thing? Because I imagine. From the sideline, it'd be easier to kind of run the business as well as have artistic input. Well, you see, I mean, the remedy was just to to, um, to end the band, to end JJ Jumpers. Right. Once I ended it, then all that angst disappeared. Okay. And then I just went back to basically, you know, now you know, being a, a, a side man, side woman, side person, that is not a a bowl of cherries either. Because it's a very weird thing, and I mean, I, and as a side person, I mean, I, I played with Charlie Musselwhite, right. played with the, the, 
played with um, Cattell Connect, played with Katie Curtis, played with Freedy, um, played with Wadada Leo Smith, played with Vernon Reed and DJ Logic. Um, I played with a number of people. And right. the whole thing about being a side person is you sort of go back into being in the dark. Because when you negotiate, when you're negotiating, first of all, you, you have to get used to the whole thing of auditioning again. Mm. And that can be very, very off-putting. Yeah. Because, you know, you step into a room, or you step into a, a building, and there you are with 12, under base, with 12 other bass players for the same gig. And you have 20 minutes or so to, to sort of like make an impression and then, you know, it's next. And so that can be, you know, that can be nerve-wracking. And, yeah. and what you don't understand is that, and you, you, you kind of understand it later, but when you first get into that world, what you don't understand, a lot of times the person who's picked is not necessarily picked because of their musical prowess. A lot of times a person can be picked um, because, you know, what, first of all, for you to get invited, everybody there is, is, is a decent player. So, you know, that's, that's a given. But a lot of times a person could be picked because of the way they look. It could be their gender. It could be because maybe the leader feels a sort of an affinity with them as, as, a, as a person. And you start to realize that it's not even really that important how well you play, but it's 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 important how well you play. But it might be more important if the the band leader thinks that they'll have a good time with you on the road, that they think you'll be fun, that you'll be a, that you'll be a, a a low a low stress person, you know, low management low low management tour mate, and things of that nature, and and so. So once you realize, it sort of like frees you up to just go in and be yourself. Because a lot of people will like, you know, especially so competitive back in those days, they would actually, you know, go online and, and take a look at the artist and maybe come in dressed the way they saw the artist dressed yeah. on, on, you know, YouTube or something or or if the artist was was and I'm not I'm not I'm not making this up. If the artist was like British or the artist was from a particular country, they they maybe come in and and, and fake an accent. Oh no! You know. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so so it got it got kind of crazy, but yeah. um, I'm blessed that sort of my artistry um, and the fact that I'm I'm pretty low maintenance and and pretty chill. Um, I was able to get a lot of gigs. I was able to get a lot of gigs. Nice. Well, at that, you know, if you're working the road like that, it makes sense. You want to be with who you can handle. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> another, uh, my other question on uh, the statement before was, with the value of the dollar and the value of music, you said you knew you knew the you know the value of both. Is one more valuable? And what is the valuable? Like on the on a business end of it, because it, without, as far as music business, there's no business without the music. So that there has to be like the top tier. So the music is invaluable. Right. The music is invaluable. There's, there's actually whatever dollar, whatever dollar amount, the highest dollar amount you can get for, for your music, 
or for a music engagement, whatever, is still not enough. Mm -hmm. The only thing you have to sort of like focus on is just making sure that there aren't too many fingers in that dollar amount. So if yeah. if the actual yeah. gig is for five thousand, yet yet you know as a band you make one thousand five hundred, that's unacceptable. Right. That's unacceptable because then we're talking about three thousand five hundred dollars that are going to folks who are literally riding on your back. So that's and when and when you talk about how, um, I'll go back. Um, about an hour ago in our conversation or 40 minutes ago and say that when you mentioned that that it seems like folks today were more um, adept at basically handling business and music. Well, that's because the music in industry crumpled. Mm. They were forced to. Right. So, you know, it, it's just like, you know, if you're forced into something, you don't you don't really look at at um, what it used to be. Well, well you, I mean, as, as far as a new as far as a new player, right. if you're coming up and you're and you're and you're a new player, you look at what what your landscape is. You don't really even have the perspective to remember that there were gatekeepers back through the '50s and the '70s. And as a gatekeeper, you you had to like basically. You were able to refine your craft in sort of like a local market, and then from a local market, you maybe did some regional stuff, and then some, from some regional stuff, you maybe started to do some some stuff in, in your part of the country, and then if you're lucky enough, you get connected to um, a national representative that basically decides that they want to put the money in to, to putting your picture and your sound out around the world and you become a national act well there's gatekeepers all along the way to get there right. and you had to you had to jump over these hurdles to get there and a lot of acts didn't whereas dave now there's no gatekeepers mm. you and me we could put together a band tomorrow and put it up on youtube and we're in the game right right well let's do it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, well, so that also, like, do you think that, I personally think that, one, that's amazing that that option's available, right, that you can do that, and that those gatekeepers aren't there, but do you think, so th I imagine that leads to a lot of unrefined uh, kind of works being thrown at that market maybe they're not ready for um, to some degree, and also... I uh, imagine it makes it a lot. Now, instead of just one signal, there's a, a bunch of signals which make like a static sound as opposed to, here's an act. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I do know what you mean. Because I imagine there'd be a lot. A lot. Is that, I mean, is that the case, you think? I, I think that is the case. And it's not even a good or bad thing. It's just the case as to what is. Um, first of all, you know, when I, when I was growing up, music had a particular emphasis in everybody's life that it no longer holds and hasn't held for maybe the last 20 years because, you know, just the whole 
um, DVD and, and home entertainment and, and everything else with films and, and, and things of that nature has, has lessened the, um, the focus on music. And um, then, then the fact that there aren't any gatekeepers, the fact that everyone and anyone can create music First of all, that that is a lovely thing, but what it also does is there's so much music to sort through. How how do you how do you actually garner some attention? Right. You know, to yeah. to how do you how do you make a livelihood out of having to be competitive with pretty much the world? That is, that is completely wide open to anybody to enter the game. And then the other thing I'll say about that, the one thing about having to jump the hurdles from the gatekeepers is that it forced you to refine your craft. It forced you to play, you know, the, the, the chicken circuit and, and night after night. And, and, and like, well, just think about the Beatles in Germany and the fact that they had to, to play you know, four sets a night for for you know for however long, and then when you when you see them and you they and you see like video footage of like like the, the Shea Stadium concert, where basically they were piping the music through the um, the audio system for for the the game announcers. Um, the stadium was like packed with girls screaming at the top of their lungs, yet the audio renditions, that what you can hear, they were tight as a button. Right, right. And they could only have been that tight because of all the time they put in getting to that point. So that's the lovely thing about, that was the one lovely thing about the gatekeepers, is that basically by the time you did become national, if you were blessed to become national, you were you were really good at whatever you did. Whatever your music style was, you were really good. And now there's there's not that support system. There's nowhere for bands to really develop their, their craft um out of the out of the national international spotlight. And when I talk to, to musicians as far as as far as the landscape today, I tell them be very, very careful, because because if you want to really control your image, if you think about it, if you want to really control your image, you basically shouldn't even put anything out or play any place until you are completely developed and and comfortable mm. in 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 your musical presentation. Because you know you could you could have like you can't even have warm up gigs anymore, right. because somebody will, will be there with a camera phone, and shoot it and put it up on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. So you know, really, if <clears throat> if you think about controlling your image, you don't even want to do any warm up gigs or even play out until everything is completely the way you want it to be seen to the public. Because at the very first time you play out. You, you at that point you lose control of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
And if it's not, if it's not a great show, or if it's, you know, then then all of a sudden it's out there and people say, oh, it's not a great show. Right. And they move on. Yeah. Yeah. No, that definitely is a, a factor, a factor to consider. Like I'd, I never thought of it like that because you, you're right. You can't you can't even go out and try new stuff until it's perfected because as soon as you do, and even you know even the 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 person sharing the thing it, you know it's probably with well intent. They're like I'm supporting my friends. I'll put them up on a thing, um, but it's like you said it becomes the public domain at or not you know it comes out to the public at that point, and then yep. you can't really you can't be that well crafted image of, of. Now you know the other thought on that though is that. You really didn't just have to have a devil may care attitude, right? And you just go out and do it, and you don't even really care. I'm just talking about, you know, I mean, there, there are certain people. You could see certain artists where, when you became aware of them, they had a stagecraft down. They yeah. had, you, you know, what I mean, they had yeah. a show, they had a look, they had a sound, and, and a lot of times those are are acts that basically had to jump hurdles and went through the whole music business process. Um, and, and, even, and even if the, the promotional story fabricated about them, said like, oh, well, yeah, we saw these guys playing out on, on the sidewalk, and we said like, damn, that's a great sound. Excuse my yeah, language. We said, good. that's a great sound. Let's, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's see what we can do with them. And then you find out that they had been together in like Little Rock, Arkansas for five years. <laughs> well, it's it's definitely the, the deception too that that sells the narrative, but like, oh, there it is, right? So wow. there it is, and like, bit okay. What was like the biggest? I guess I mean this is a, a question down the rabbit hole, I guess. But biggest business revelation that you've gotten from from schooling that stuck with you all the way through until until now, even. That like made the music business make sense. Was there like a, a core principle that you found it fit in like any area it needed to fit? I know that's kind of a weird, vague question. Or is there any business philosophical approach that which I know business and philosophy don't really go together? Or maybe a logical approach. I'm I'm looking to see say um, fits the narrative for no matter what. Well, I'd have to say. Um the the biggest revelation that basically has become a foundation of of my performing and management style is there are no rules nothing set in stone if somebody tells you this is the only way that it could be done a lot of times that's just to their benefit might not necessarily be to your benefit but if you're strong in yourself and see, that's the other thing. That's the other blessing, and the fact that I did have uh, um, an, another financial outlet that I could say no to some things musically if they really weren't going in the direction or compensated me to what I thought would be fair. I could just say no. A lot of musicians, or if, or, or even whatever particular, like if you're a basketball player, football player, a lot of times you can't say no. Because that's the only thing you can do, or that's the only thing you focused your life on doing. And the only way you can succeed is to be in the game. If you're not in the game, you don't even have a chance. So you have to say yes. And they know that. They know that. 
that's the thing. You have to understand that that everybody, not not, not you, not you personally. Yeah, yeah I know. I mean, mean, just people have to understand that it's all it's all human nature, and and you wouldn't expect someone across the negotiating table. You would hope, but but you you don't expect anyone to be just like completely fair and say something to you like, well, you know what? This is your music. This is your art. You've put a lot of work into this. I'm going to help you, but um, I only need to take, you know, just, you know, a small increment of, of, of the income because you really deserve most of it. That that doesn't lead to to folks having like, you know, a home in the Hollywood Hills and, and you know, being able to send all their children to private school and stuff like that. You, so people basically just for, well, they'll say self-preservation, but really it, there's some greed in there too, basically have to sort of like take more than, well, take, take more than what they really should. So they, so they can like, you know, continue to, to be either build or maintain their lifestyle. And if you agree to it, well, then fine. You know, I mean, you, you agree to it, you signed the piece of paper. So basically, my thought on that is, is that if somebody tells you, well, you know, the typical phrase, well, this is a standard contract. That doesn't mean you have to sign it. That doesn't mean you have to agree to that. You say, well, you don't want the standard because basically the st- you are the standard. I'm the standard. Let's make a contract that's specifically good for me. You know, and and when you do, when you tell people that, and let me tell you, that also can make you a very lonely person too, because when people realize that they can't take advantage of you, or 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 you won't sort of like play along with the game that enriches them, then you stop getting those calls. Because they, they they can easily find somebody else who's talented or who they they feel they can make some money off of who will sign that contract. That's that's very insightful though. That make like because your financial situation only matters to you. You know, the count that should be the standard for the contract would be who is it being si- uh, uh, um, offered to. That's that's really well said. As a musician so, trying yeah. to figure out the the business end of things, I really I appreciate this insight beyond oh, the, sure. <laughs> beyond what I can express. That's really insightful. Um, so the orchestra, <laughs> with the reason we're here to talk, your career has been <laughs> so dense and in, in um, so like let's get the orchestra. When orchestra, when did the concert? Okay, just even the word orchestra, I find that a uh, very profound in a way. Is as opposed to orchestra. Now, is that a Sun Ra influence? Tip of the hat there. It or? is okay. It's a, it's Greg. Greg Tate came up with the name. Greg Tate was the founder of the band. He came up with the name. Okay. Burn Sugar, the Orchestra Chamber. You know, and um, the band started um, basically as an idea in his head, and then he decided he wanted to. Um, get together a, a group of musicians to see if, if how it would sound uh, with with actual air moving, 
And his thought was he was enamored with um, Lawrence D. Butch Morris's conduction system, which is a system of creating seemingly scripted music out of improvisation. And Butch, when he, he started off as a jazz cornet, um, cornet, uh, trumpet, trumpeter, a cornet, how would you say that? Cornist? Or, uh, cornist? Right. I think it's like a, a cousin of the trumpet. Right. Um, so he, he started off as, as a wind player, let's put it that way. <laughs> and then he switched to um, conducting. And he, uh, from the story that I've been relayed, he asked um, his, his, his conducting teacher if I wanted to stop right here on page 36 and just sort of like really, really, you know, delve into the, this, the, these eight bars of music, the, mo- the motifs presented during this, this eight bars, these eight bars of music. How do I do that? And his teacher told him, you can't do that. Because basically everybody's taught to just read through the score. That's what they're taught. Right. And he says, well, I have to find a way to do that. And so he developed conduction. And basically, so then what he could do is he could have, he could freeze. So say there's like a two-bar motif. He could freeze that motif on the page. And then he could, through hand and baton signals, tar- start to expand that motif. Be it be it um, play it at a different tempo, be move it harmonically, maybe from where it's it's maybe from where it's rooted into maybe the third or the fifth or the flat seventh or something. Um, he could basically um, take the, the the motif and break it in half and have um, one side of the orchestra play one half and the other side of the orchestra play the other half and then have them pile on top of each other with their halves of the motif mm-hmm. yeah. and then on on a hand signal or baton signal go back to the score and continue with the piece <laughs> so greg became very enamored with that and but he wanted to bring it into a miles davis bitches bruise context so he basically got a number of electric and you know semi-acoustic players together in a rehearsal room who who he felt were had strong individual um strong strong musical personalities and and directed us through some improvs um with with his hand signals as basically leading us to where to go and he would depend on you as a player to 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 feel comfortable in the fact that the only thing you had to play was what you knew so as he asked, he could he could look at you and give you a signal, which is sort of like a, an open-handed moving out signal, which is like to solo. So you would start to solo, and then you would start. He he would hear a certain motif, and he would give you like a large C, point at it, which means like to repeat that that motif. And then you start to repeat that motif, and then he could build a piece with the other musicians around that repeated motif. And then you have a created piece of music. So we did that, and we had a great time. People like Vijay Iyer, um, Bruce Mack, Ronnie Drayton, Trevor Holder, um, Simi Stone, um, Michael Morgan Craft, a lot of great players were in that room. We did two rehearsals, 
And then we took it to CBGB's Underground and had our first gig. Did two gigs, and then we went right to the studio, and he added some, some other players, um, Swiss Chris and um, a few other players, and um, we recorded the first record, Blood on the Leaf, in 1999. So going into it, because I've, I've gone through the discography a few times before talking, um, with that, so how did, when was that, like, through those two rehearsals was what was basically on that record what or was there was there a level of improv that was because at that point it's a different environment i'd imagine studio wise for for how you described how the band works which is man the amount of attention to to these and like i imagine did he come up with these signals or were they just kind of felt and you guys learned what they meant as oh no he had a, he had a, 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 a he had distinct signals. Okay. And basically, he just conducted us in the studio and then, and then just ran a lot of tape, just like Miles okay. would used to okay. do. Yeah. You know, run a lot of tape, and then you go back and, and you cut and paste it together, or you, you, know, you, you, you find a particular section that you really like, so you just take that section and create a piece and then have call some people in for overdubs over that section, things like that. Yeah. But yeah, all that on the first record is pretty much conducted. And then there, there are overdubs of folks who came back in and recut stuff. You know, um, it's, it, it's completely unscripted, scripted music. Right, which is, it's the way of no way. It's the, like, it's... Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. Because, like, yeah... It, it it takes that the freedom of like you'd find in something like jazz where like um like you're going off the charts right you're playing the standards or you're doing the reharms of it and then you get off the head and you're just playing over the changes it's like the, it's like the changes now are are can can change as you're playing over the changes and like that's pretty profound yeah. to put it in that context of like the essence of like a of a jazz band in like kind of a a classical approach like, yeah, yes. And Dave, I mean, what do we even call jazz? I mean, to me, jazz really isn't a music. It's a sensibility. Now, the fact that, you know, we have people, like, I, I think there's, there's, there's actually a, a sort of like an uproar from a few famous jazz musicians saying, like, let's just ban standards. Let's just stop playing them. Because basically the only thing they do is sort of proliferate, you know, the, 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 the has been. It's almost like the same thing that my father told me. You know, you, mm. you keep playing these standards, you're just making the folks who actually created them famous. It doesn't mm. really do anything for you. You know, where's your music? Jazz was, was supposedly, at the time, always the cutting-edge music of its time. That stopped, what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? You know, yeah. ever since ever ever since people started to like put a bad name on fusion, because when fusion first started, come on, weather report, and, right? And you know, of the the first, you listen to that first record of weather report, or you listen to Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, right? Or you know, that stuff is is just miraculous. You listen to Herbie Hancock's when he had the Sextet yeah. album. You know, come on, that stuff is miraculous. But then all of a sudden, you know, it, it, we got into this whole thing of, of well, 
and, and I have to tell you, we received a little kickback when we would go and do workshops at, at, at music school, at music schools and music departments. You know, the first things that the, the, because the teachers would do is they, they wanted to try to expose us as basically the reason we're doing conduction is because we're uneducated. But mm-hmm. so it's so like, well, we would just want to read down this chart and wonder if y'all would join us. And then, of course, we'd read down the chart right with them. Right. And so that, that threw that, that bone <laughs> out the window. <laughs> and then we could get down to what we were trying to expose them. And, and rather than the, 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 um, the professors embracing us, basically what they do, they would feel threatened when, the, when, the, when they didn't see this as really being another tool to engage their students and to expand their creativity. Right. Which is all it is. Yeah. You know? So, you know, I mean, the whole publishing house thing, the whole BMI ASCAP, you know, let's play Stella by Starlight for the 895th time. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. That's not jazz. But in this sense, it is, because it's almost like taking the elements of just, like, nature in a way. There's, you can't control what the water's doing, but you can control how you look at it. You can't control you what where the uh, leaves and the trees are blowing, but you can control control your view of it, as far as shifting where you're at, uh, your van- your viewpoint, and like that's what's so, so profound about the orchestra. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean that's what Butch basically Butch basically is sort of like opened up a pathway for for the thought of jazz to continue. So well, it's uh, about the current project you guys got coming out, the uh, um, uh, uh, Orconda. So this that I found after listening through, one this this project has it seems like all the musicians of are of a certain uh, caliber, and I imagine everyone's if just even looking at your career, um, everyone's career has to be pretty uh, busy. Maybe now is a different time, so getting everyone in the same room I imagine is not easy, but like. This record, it sounded like there was some more like electronic drums kind of going on with uh, I think it was the the second track. I don't know if when I got them and um, they're in the exact order of how it's supposed to come out when Howard sent me the the advance. But yeah, yeah you're talking about um, Midnight Morris. Yes. Yeah, because it had the yeah. cool uh, descending bass line. And it was just like in the pocket of it. It's really it's yeah. a cool track. But that that sounded. Yeah. That's a, is that the kind of a new approach with this record? Is there like an overarching tale that's being? So there's there's, there's an overarching tale to that, and okay. basically, the 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 the, orig- the the first track, "Angels of Wakanda," is from a recording session in 2018, and in that recording session, um, on February 29th of 2000 and so I want to say 19, maybe 2019, um, the orchestra chamber played the Apollo Theater where we had a sold-out audience that viewed the, the, the film Shaft, and yeah. we played the soundtrack live. I saw the YouTube video of that. That's cool. Yeah. The, um, the, the producers of the show, Cami Music, basically were taking a chance with us because they had done, you know, this kind of thing before, but they had been with, with classical orchestras. Right. Where everything was charted and everything of that nature. And they didn't know as the kind of ensemble we were, if we'd be able to 
have the um, um but it almost makes sense like if if it's scored it's like there's a confidence that what the orchestra is going to do is going to completely line with the film and if like if it's more improv it, it seems like that would be the fear like well they're going to they're not going to hit the beats you know what i mean like i can see where the I do but see what we did though is is as we do even though we're playing so, like the Isaac Hayes score we actually, what we like to say is um, caramelize. We sort yeah. of like burnt sugared it yeah. so that it's how we would play it. Now, what we had to do, though, they weren't sure we'd be able to do the um, the in and outs. Oh, okay. Because, you know, um, when, you, when you play to a film, you have to start the music at a particular time, and you have to be out because it's all sort of like intermixed with the dialogue and intermixed with, with you know, particular, um, um, you know, what, whatever, sort of like street sounds or, yeah. or the sound of a door shutting or something like, like, you know, you stop and then the door shuts or you stop and then somebody starts to say something or the scene switches. You have to be very precise in all that. And they didn't know if as a... Uh, Improvise, you know, as an improvising band, if we if we could do that, and we did, we did. We hit all our our, our P's and Q's, and the audience loved it. And when the when the um, owner of the presenting company uh, came backstage, he was in shock because he thought he he thought things something <laughs> would go wrong, and nothing went wrong. And from that point on. We were looking at a East Coast, West Coast, and European tour that was probably going to make our earnings for the year somewhere in the six figures. The week, the week after that, all of that was, was out the window because of the pandemic. Right, right. You know, so we did two things, Greg and I. We, um, we had some money saved for an, our first vinyl release. And instead of using it for that, we immediately chopped it up into stimulus packages for the burnt sugar um, independent contractors who would who were most in need. Because of course, after the 29th, the first day is rent day. Right. Um, so we helped out a number of people like that. And then when 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 the industry really when we realized that the industry was going to be shut down for a long period of time, we started to look around at our back catalog and ran across that 2018 session and realized we had something there that we could actually go in the lab, so to speak, and work with. And so that's what we did. We took that and um, we remixed it. Then we sent it off to Berlin, where Satch Hoyt, who's um, plays flute, a flautist, has, he's an OG with us. Um, he basically made three or four flute stems. Then um, we took it to the Jeffrey Smith Studio Jam Carver in Jersey City and attached the flute stems and, and mixed a, a few other things in it. He did some horns, some horn parts. And um, then um, Greg decided he wanted to send it to Mark Gilmore in Stockholm 
but didn't want to send the track. What we sent him, what we decided to send him was just send him all the individual, didn't want to send the tune, Angels of Wakanda, just sent him the individual tracks. And without having, you know, any kind of knowledge of, of the loop, um, which, which is the basis of Angels of Wakanda, everything's based off that loop, we're not having any knowledge of that. That's where he created Midnight Moors. He created, and so, and not only did he create Midnight Moors, but he created a 45-minute suite that is comprised of six different songs, Midnight Moors being just one of them. And the loop is, doesn't appear in any of them. It's, it's a completely different musical offshoot from the loop-based tunes. And so it, it gave us, it gave us, um, it gave us another two two releases worth of material, and we picked Midnight Moors to be um, just a teaser of what's going to come next as part of the original package, and then we um, to, to tie off Angels of Wakanda, we sent all the material to Isala Beatty, who's like an OG vocalist with us, probably one of the, the best vocalists we know. Anybody knows once you hear her. And she picked just a little segment of Midnight Moors, built a loop off of that segment, and Greg sent her some lyrics, and she created the um, Lasala over in Arconda vocal track. She did all the different harmonies and everything. And then the last piece to the puzzle was um, Oconda Overdrive. And basically that's my creation. What I did was I took um, one in the studio with Jeff and took a segment that starts really about about ten minutes in, and just made the um, the first section of it the actual acoustic drums from Greg Gonzalez, me on bass, and featured um, brought up Leon Grunbaum's um, Fender Rhodes part and made that kind of the first section. And then about four minutes, three minutes into Oconda Overdrive, that's when I brought the loop in. Then what I did was I um, wrote a tenor and flute part for the first section. And then for the second section, I cut and pasted various segments from Satch's flute stems and cobbled that together and then had Z Jeff double it on tenor to create the horn line that goes through the second section. So it's really a totally a Frankenstein right. thing. Yeah. Wow. Well it seems kinda like the, the, the nature of the orchestra is it, yep. it that is just that. So that's beautiful that not only um Greg but all you guys can kind of uh contribute that way. And like so, once once you wrap all that up, you send it to him, and does he shift it or kind of keep it how it is, or where does it go from that? Well, the, the thing is, is what has happened over the years. You know, there, there were when we were the sort of like the new kids on the block back in the early '90s. We basically played every place just on the the notoriety of being a conducted band that any show someone would see they would basically only see that show there at that time because no show was no two shows were the same. Well, after a while, 
the other bands start doing that, and and also you're not the, the new kid on the block. So we were blessed in the fact that the Apollo Theater, and we've had a long relationship with them, them and Laura Greer, their um, artistic director, um, they were having a tribute to, to um, James Brown, but they didn't want to hire a James Brown cover band. So they thought that it might be a cool idea to have us come in and um, and play James Brown, but play it the way we would play James yeah. Brown. And it went over really, really well that David led to us um, through Lincoln Center and the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis and the Hammer Theater in L.A. and uh, Portland Jazz Festival, Earshot Jazz Festival, the um, Santa Ana there's a jazz festival in, in um, Santa Ana Rissi, Italy, Cal- Calgary, Italy. Um, they all would ask us to basically caramelize a particular songbook. And so that sort of got us through the um, second, the second third of, of our career where we would go in and we would, um, you know, we, we would, you know, do, do a, a Rick James tribute, a Prince tribute, a We Insist Freedom Now, Abby Lincoln, Max Roach. Um, yeah, you know, oh, cool, cool, cool. So, you know, so, and that became very lucrative for us. And, and then we decided um, with the pandemic pretty much shutting everything down, it was the perfect opportunity for us to go back in the lab and go back to our roots. So, you know, it, it's, it's like angel, um, angels of Wakanda could just as well have followed um, Blood on the Leaf and the, the trilogy we put after Blood on the Leaf. That depends on what you know, part one, part two, part three, um, as far as being pretty much um, conducted improvisation only this time with angels rather than just having one conductor there's like five or six conductors because we've all been immersed in the system so long we all know it so, you know, so well and all the players know it so well that, that now it's become a, a family conducted ensemble in uh, listening through the discography and getting to this one it it has like how you're saying it has that feel of those, but also it it doesn't it sticks out which which makes sense now that you describe how it's how it was written, and that's and then diving into your guys's live performances, that's a whole nother feel, like because um, I dove into that a little later after I went through the discography I'm like oh man, they're they're like they're doing their own take on Max Roach like this is like, I, like I was saying I'm halfway through that one I was like. I started maybe at the wrong point. This is equally as cool. And just trying to <laughs> figure out how all this works, I'm like, but hearing how that the narrative came together, and that's a really cool a cool way that kind of goes back uh, really to kind of what your your dad said in the most, like, profound way because you're paying homage to all these people that and, and the, their, their music, but you're not doing it. You're not just making their legacy louder. You're putting, you're starting your own, and yes. that's that's amazing. That's how music should be. Like, we are only our own. The only one that can play your songs is you. And like, uh, we spend so much time reciting what other people say. I don't think we. Yeah, and I think maybe that falls into, especially now, like with rhetoric and just like 
lack there of like they get uh, a weird politically, but I feel like a lot of people don't think for themselves in a weird way because we're spending too much time repeating people we think we should repeat, and then you don't really learn. And I'm, I think that's the same case musically, and like it's important yeah. to be your own your own voice musically and like thought provoked. Well, you know what's what's funny about all that is that everybody's lives are so jam-packed with just people trying to get through the day. Yeah. That that a lot of times they 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 go for the easiest way, so they can sort of have you know they just go for the easiest way. Yeah. And and the easiest way is usually to follow the leader. And because, you know, it, it takes time. It takes time and a lot of concentrated effort to develop your own style, especially with all the noise that's in everybody's ears these days. It's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not an easy thing, nor is it made easy for you. Right. There's, there's, there's no support system for that. And, and so that, that's, that's what's kind of sad. And, but also it points out, that I, I, I hope that, you know, you, you let your students know that they really, if they're going to spend a lot of time in this, that they, they owe it to themselves to develop their own style so that they come out, so that, so that, so that, so that and by own style, it has to be the kind of thing where when somebody, a complete stranger, hears something, they will investigate it because they don't know who it is. Right. And then they find out it's you. But yeah. if it sounds like, you know, crisscross or if it sounds like, you know, whoever, if it sounds like um, Amy Whitehouse or whatever, it, you know, but that's the way the industry tries to do this. It's like, you know, and, that, and they used to do that a lot. They used to say like, well, okay, this person is hot. Well, we need to have somebody like that on our label. And then somebody, and then an artist might be like, well, that's not really what I do. And it's just like, well, look, we'll sign you and we'll, we'll pay you and we'll put you out on the road. And you sort of say like, well, okay, maybe I'll do that just to start, you know, but then, then I'd like to basically get back to my music. And then you become famous. And they're like, well, I'm sorry. We need another one of these. We need, right. we need another Amy, Amy, you know, Winehouse cover, cover record. And you're like... <clears throat> Well, but I have my own originals, and I, I thought maybe, you know, and once I became famous, I said, well, you're not famous because of your own originals, because nobody knows your own originals. You're famous because you, you sound like Amy Winehouse. Yeah. So come on. <laughs> yeah, it's a vicious circle, because, like... It is. It is. Like, you, you, want, that, you want that in, and you, you think that would be your, your platform, because there's narrative like that, but, like... It's yeah no, and I, I agree a hundred percent. It's you define yourself and be confident and proud of yourself is worth more. I think maybe, and if you can do it that way, and I think those artists tend to to stick out for and make that they become the new Amy Winehouse in a way that the record yeah. label is going to try to get. But it's hard to do that because you got to do everything on your own, and you would you would know yeah. coming from both yeah. angles of it how hard it is to push someone like that. But, but it, it makes it so much, it, it makes it so gratifying right, in right. the end. I mean, if the journey was easy, everyone would do it. 100%, yeah. 
So, yes, the journey is hard for you to develop your own style and for you to stick to that style and, and for you to and also to be comfortable in rejection. You have to be you have to be comfortable in the fact that there will be people who say no. But you have to understand that, you know, the same thing I was talking to you about being a side person right. when you don't get the gig. A lot of times it has nothing to do with your musicality or it could be it could be just the way, you know, a, a the leader just doesn't feel comfortable with you or feels more comfortable with someone else. Right. But doesn't diminish your worth or your value. And so you have to it's it's you have to have that sort of what is that term intestinal fortitude? Mm. You have to yeah. really have that. You have to have that to be true. Now now it's not for everybody. Right. And if you want to go the route of if somebody's going to give you something to, to you know, somebody's going to put you on um, Caribbean cruise tours for for you yeah. know for five years to be a Bob Seger cover band, and and you're going to be paid really well and be able to eat lobster and shrimp every night. Go for it. It's definitely it's a comfortable gig, but you're you're living the um, what's that movie Groundhog Day <laughs> over and over. I imagine a lot. <laughs> but you know, some people, you know, I mean, that 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 would be success. Right. I'm sure there are some people right. who would consider. And you know what? It would be success. Yeah, you're making. A I'm not trying. Music. I'm yeah. not trying to belittle anybody's anybody's the the, the path they get to where they want to get. Right. I'm not trying to belittle that, but I'm just saying, make it self determination. You determine where you want to go. That's all I'm saying. Jerry, I appreciate. I think that's that's the perfect point to leave off on. <laughs> like, there's no better end note on that. Um, I really appreciate your time, man. We've been talking for a minute, and uh, what before uh, before talking, I dove into your career and just the history, of everything. And I was, this is the exact conversation I was looking to have. So thank you very much for spending time with me and talking with me. Dave, my pleasure, man. Thank you.